Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Please join me in welcoming and thanking new patrons. Johnny Thompson, Patty Pro, Katie Lannon, Dave Baxter, Cal Bell All as well, and Amanda Renetti. All patrons get access to early commercial-free episodes on Sundays and Wednesdays. From there, tiers include weekly bonus episodes, immediate access to our entire back catalog of over a thousand Patreon-exclusive episodes, and logo merch. Not to mention the bonus episodes that we just sometimes share with everybody just because. To see how you can support the show and be rewarded for it, please check out the donation tiers at patreon.com creepypod. Can you feel that? The 31 Days of Horror is less than two weeks away. No, if you'll excuse me, I need to go rent a bus. No. This is Creepy, a podcast dedicated to sharing the most famous, chilling, and disturbing creepypastas and urban legends in the world. Whether these stories truly happened or are simply fabrications is for you to decide. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Creepy Presents An Eternal Bloom Written by J.M.J. Brewer Most days, like today, I worked alone. But my apprenticeship last year had been with an old-timer named Hoop who'd regale me with tales of notable inspections. Catacombs were surprisingly common. I attributed the phenomena to a latent death wish by the homeowner, unveiled subconsciously by spiking their own home sale. Hoop had once told of a domicile which had been host to a rollicking shindig. His words the night before inspection. Party guests draped this way and that way. Half of them didn't have any clothes on. The stench, I tell you. Hoop went on to describe decadent meats vultured into bone piles and pie crusts arranged in occultic representation. The chandeliers swung from open skylight windows and the basement door hung off its hinges. At the bottom of the stairs were three naked forms, a writhing ball of garter snakes, and a snow sled. Most remarkably, Hoop swore that a burning Rolls Royce hung in the highest branches of an oak. He could see it through the third-story loft window. The mansion was down a ravine, and the Rolls must have spun out of control along the drive. Flew off and landed true as a treehouse. Funny thing. A little fire danced off the top of that Rolls's hood. I kept expecting it to explode and fling a piece just perfect tight to give me a jugular haircut. It was a type of story you naturally disbelieved. And it was the final tall tale he delivered to me under the mask of wisdom. 
Mere days later, he'd applied over a month of accumulated vacation and retired without so much as a tip of your hat. Anyway, it was this story that hung in the back of my brain while I embarked on the inspection. Maybe because traffic up Pinhook was strangled on account of a fiery wreck. The owner and I had made eye contact as I drove by and he tipped me an odd little salute. An admission of, awful luck, eh stranger? Wind whipped his blazing car into shapes like people pirouetting. All stuck to the hatchback and dancing themselves so hot they couldn't help but burn out. And fast. Or maybe I recollected Hoop's story because this neighborhood of condominiums and McMansions seemed like some sort of unreflection of that spirited house full of spent people. And here? Not a soul. For my money, nothing felt so dead as a fresh building yet occupied. This sensation was the engine for my vocation. As I started on the first-rank buildings, condos bookmarked by five-story apartment complexes, I wondered if the future denizens would feel the imprint I was making in their homes. My past presence would linger as a fog. A smoke, more like, clinging inside their nostrils until their noses became blind to the harsh tang of my manifestation. I had a week to make the rounds before anyone moved in. On that initial morning, I found no issues precluding sale. Every countertop shined as brightly as the fillings and a handful of teeth. Still, my instincts cooed beware. The evolution of this land from marsh to little boxes had been swift indeed, and I couldn't help wondering about corners cut in instances of extreme and immediate development. Over lunch, I read on the balcony of a penthouse apartment. Below me, the inner expanse in the neighborhood sprawled like a European count's sculpture garden, except substitute statues for playgrounds, albino peacocks for exotic tough ducks, and gravel paths for concrete sidewalks. In the Fires 3, Dr. Russell White argued it was not chance, nor bad weather, nor a comet, but rather a revolutionary cabal of the United States Forestry Department that lit the three simultaneous infernos known as the Great Chicago Fire, the Great Michigan Fire, and the Peshtigo Fire on the night of October 8, 1871. Before continuing on, I lit a few matches and dropped them off the balcony. The fall choked each little flame. Except for one that burned a black wisp into the concrete walk. I collected the spent matches and held them in my mouth. By the afternoon, I had a small section of my map covered in pluses to indicate they'd passed inspection. I held a flat hand up to the horizon and counted how many fingers there were between horizon and sun. Lately, I'd taken to leaving my watch at home. Its hands advanced unwholesomely behind the crystal glass of its face. Once the watchmaker put the cogs into business, the damn thing never stopped. It had no opportunity for emptiness, no time to be still. The watch in question wound itself with the movement of my arm, and after waking from a nightmare in which I failed repeatedly to torch it in the kitchen sink, using exorbitant amounts of vegetable oil, kerosene, and scraps of hamster bedding, I've never owned a hamster, it had occurred to me the only way to defeat the watch was immobility. My finger trick worked as well as a watch, anyway, or better. It was four hours before dusk. The sun burned wildly above my hand, 
and I imagine what it'd be like to stick it wrist deep into the sun. Left of one street and right at another took me to six houses ringing a cul-de-sac. I could spy what was left of the swamp behind the houses. The heat of the day created ghosts of water above the glades and in the dips of the asphalt. I spun in the cul-de-sac to number the homes on my map. House 4 tugged at my inspector's strings and I drifted over to it. The front door was locked. The side door to the garage hung open. Instead of going inside, I circled the place. The grass was beginning to grow in through the straw. The bevy of unplanted shrubs, flowers, even a few trees huddled along the back of the garage. I peered through House 4's windows into the finished basement. Shade carpet and space for a rec room. I pushed from the foundation to stand and yelped at the pain. My left hand bloomed bloody. I licked the palm to keep it from dripping. The foundation was evidently not concrete, but instead appeared to be a rough-hewn ancient slab. Plenty of places to cut yourself. I made a note, underlined it, circled house four on my map. Despite the foundation, the house was wired for modern usage. Sinuous silver pipes led to the breaker box. Fiddling it open one-handed placed me at strange perspectives such that I could see behind the breaker box where it wasn't flushed to the stone. There, drawn blackly onto the stone itself, was the message. Hoop. 5-30. Which meant that Hoop had inspected this home exactly a year ago. I completed my outer revolution. Aside from the primeval foundation, it was hunky-dory. My fingers were idly rubbing an errant match against my thumbnail. I snapped the match to life. The flame grew, bloomed, and my fingers smothered it to death. I counted back the months to when I'd last seen Hoop. It must have been last May, because I'd gotten sick and taken off for a week, and upon my return, the old boy had already shoved off which would place this home as one of Hoop's final inspections before walking off into the sunset. I stared into the house's blindless window eyes and studied its vinyl olive skin and wondered how vinyl siding burned. Bubble or slide? Shadows lolled out of the side door like a blanket of black tongues. To procrastinate going inside, I ran the hose and watered the plants. Having nothing else to put me off and feeling foolish besides, I strolled inside. The inspection went as swimmingly as every other. Well, the furnace's hull appeared half a decade newer than its interior workings, probably indicating an illegal recycle job, but the unit would function for at least a year before it needed replacement and was therefore no skin off my nose. Houses one and two were likewise acceptable. Still... I couldn't shake the strange feeling of some grand trick being played on me. As if each house had some crucial yet easily overlooked infraction and my misidentification of these issues would result in dire consequences of uncertain nature. But what did I care? These homes passed inspection. And if every so often it felt like I wasn't alone, exactly, in this development... Well, I could chalk that up to the human instinct of overawareness when solitary. Still, I was overcome with a nervousness and near dread. An awe, even. A shining curiosity. My urge to enter House 4 fought my urge to do no such thing. 
I split the difference between retreat and advance and sat cross-legged in the center of the cul-de-sac. Nothing happened. I wasn't sure what I thought I was doing, so I began to read. Dr. White was outlining the casualties of the Pastigo fire, and I found myself turning quickly to study House 4. Someone was dancing in the second-story bedroom. They were evidently on the other side of the room, and what I was seeing was their shadow's reflection in the mirror. A streak of sunlight jagging in and out of view like the glare from a watch face. I was rushing through the side door of House 4 before I even realized... That certainly couldn't have been who I thought it was. But say I was right. Say that hoop had been, I don't know, stuck here all this time. Or living here like some weirdo. I couldn't very well leave him. Hope? The walls of House 4 strangled my voice. I called louder and this time House 4 echoed my words as sonorously as any crevasse. No one answered. The house felt a different beast entirely than the first time I'd been inside. Well, not entirely. More like I'd accidentally touched the other side of that beast's substantially asymmetrical face. I prowled to the second floor. The angle of the stairs felt too steep, and the loft tilted so acutely that I half expected the divane and end tables to slide into the railing. This canted loft was bookended by closed doors, one of these had to lead to the bedroom in which I'd maybe seen Hope. Hope? Nothing so much as a squeaking floorboard from either direction. I tried to orient my body as if I were yet in the cul-de-sac. But no matter my efforts, I couldn't seem to figure out my spatial relationship with outside. I was loath to look out the blinds, for that would leave my back exposed. I'm coming in, bud! I said. I all but charged at the leftmost door. Inside? Nobody. Before my nerves could slow me down, I dropped to my belly and checked underneath the bed, then whipped the closet doors open, unoccupied and empty, respectively. The door across the loft seemed to stretch far away, but when I stepped out of the empty bedroom, it was as if I made the expanse in a bare step. Nausea roiled in my stomach, into my throat. Knock, knock, I said. I turned the knob and crept in. But nobody stood at the window. Hoop, I ventured. Nothing. This room was as empty as the other. Cramped as the other, too. The walls slanting inward as they rose to meet the too low ceiling. I sat on the bed and caught my breath. Maybe the sunlit shape had only been a trick of the light. A reflection from the metal clasp on my lunchbox, say, sparkling on House 4's window. I peered out the window. The cul-de-sac looked empty. Yet, I knew it wasn't. I felt it in my bones. The matchbox from my pocket had found its way into my hand. Between my fingers, a match. I indulged myself with a flick, but could not peel my gaze away from the cul-de-sac. When I felt the fire licking at my fingertips, I shook out the match and stood it on the windowsill, just as whatever lurked in the cul-de-sac finally moved. Only then could I make out the vagaries of its figure, 
Something empty and insubstantial and hot. Something like the absence of flame with all of flame's emission. The shape flitted as if to mimic a bonfire, but one racked with misery. Long poles of sunlit flame stretched infinitely in the direction of each convulsion. The houses in the cul-de-sac appeared to bend towards this corona of pain. They appeared to shudder in commiseration with the figure. House four came unmoored from the earth, falling relentlessly towards this living aurora. My cut hand splattered blood, and even that pain wasn't the whole of it, the fraction of it, because I felt completely afire, utterly consumed in flame's agony, only without evidence of the agent. I was sure a match had lit in my pocket and was burning me from the inside. When I ripped them free, the matches scattered the hardwood like so many dead teeth. And that was when the roiling shape fled deeper into the development. My pain fled along with. In that split second, I was released completely from the burning. Yet I couldn't let him get away. I dashed out of the house, and once I hit the pavement, the relief of being outside overwhelmed me. I did not leap up, expecting him to be far gone. Except there he was, backlit against the horizon weaving and staggering with the zeal of a headlight reflecting a jumping deer's eyes. Our silent course continued past endless identical domiciles, but no matter how much I ran, I could not catch the light. Finally, as we came to the swamp, which marked the subdivision's edge, the swamp that once encompassed the entirety of this neighborhood, he blinkered out. Quick as that, and I was utterly alone. I slowed to a walk and laced my fingers behind my head. My breath hitched. Mist drew off the swamp. Its ferns, its pools, seemed as prehistoric as dinosaur bones. Suddenly, I very much wanted to go home. I hunted for my truck keys and found them absent. My book was not in my rear pocket either. I'd left them in the cul-de-sac. Backtracking was not as easy as I expected, but after minimal roaming, I returned to that paved whirlpool, a flock of sparrows or whatever alight from roof to roof. They might have been trailing me. House force abnormality was not abated in my absence. I flipped at the bird, trying to liven the mood. The sparrows tittered. My keys and book should have waited in the center of the cul-de-sac where I'd taken lunch. The fire's three had a distinctly emblazoned cover which I had seen on the approach. No sign. House four seemed to look right back at me. I clicked my pen and wrote, High Strangeness, on that unit's carbon sheet as well as on the development map. Then I saw it, and a stone grew beneath my tongue because my book leaned against the inside of the bedroom window, exactly where I'd leaned my spent match. It had been split open so the cover image could be seen in its entirety, a roaring, abstract flame. Within the flame screamed a figure tied to a conflagrating tree. 
drifting between his toes were the black tendrils of scorched leavings. I searched for any human-shaped slice of sunlight. Nothing. For what I hoped was the final time, I ventured into house four. The garage smelled like mud for some reason, and cooked meat. I noted the scent, perhaps a possum or raccoon in the walls. The door to the house swung sticky. I stepped over an amber-colored ichor which pooled in the entryway between house and garage. Ichor also dripped from the power outlets and bubbled up from the cracks in the hardwood. I logged the ichor in my notebook. When I squatted for a closer observation, I also discovered it was the source of the stench. Unless the walls were packed with formaldehyde-blooded possums, I could not imagine the source or composition of a liquid so foul. I crept upstairs. Bits of blue painting tape marked studs on the walls. Each room had an ethernet wall jack which dripped amber. If this place weren't beyond repair, one day every mother's son could stream simultaneously. I pitied the family who would settle here. House 4 was so nearly a home. Its gulf for trueness was all the deeper for its lack of wits. Hope! I called. One of the loft doors was open, spread against the window glass, spine wrenched in its mission, was my book. Its pages were damp and stunk of crushed bugs and crisp bacon. I read from the top of the page, a slice into chapter 5. The Pashtigo fire killed some 800 persons in Pashtigo alone. In the surrounding communities, another 1,000 to 1,700 human lives were lost. Still, the fire's impact on the infrastructure of eastern Wisconsin is not to be ignored. Since census data burned in the courthouse's basement, there is no exact count of how many buildings were consumed by the flames. We can assume it was in the hundreds. This last bit had been underlined, in black marker. Hoop had been here. Hoop had marked this passage and left two gifts nestled in the crotch of the book's wet pages. A match, unlit, and my truck key, glistening in the same ichor. I found myself unable to continue inspection. Instead, I roamed and contemplated. I locked myself into a dog kennel. Every other unit on the block was equipped with one. I sat down to better mimic the dog's height. This dog's point of view obliterated the horizon, and so, looking up, empty residences seemed to proliferate infinitely. It was easy enough to imagine a dog skeleton with me in the kennel. A dog abandoned by a cruel owner... The dog, remembering his kennel at home, roaming to the street and finding a new kennel to die in. What if she had puppies? I imagined two grave-born puppies sucking at Mama's bones. You could burn bones, given enough heat. But even in cremation, not every bone was transformed to ash. Shake a funeral urn, and it will rattle softly. But imagine as I might, there was nothing but sunlight and air and myself trapped in this cage. Oh, but if sunlight could feel, would it not shriek in pain? 
Would it not want to die? It struck me that I should be bold, admit the realities of life, however unlikely. Hope was showing himself to me, beckoning me for help. Was I really going to chase an invisible flame and pretend an hour later it had been a trick of the light? Ignore an underlying passage on residential conflagration? No, and no. Hoop was not living in pleasant retirement. He'd been trapped in this bizarre, off-kilter development. He was in screaming, constant pain. And he'd picked the right man to burn him free. Next to the garden tools and weed whip in my truck bed were two five-gallon gas cans. One of the gas cans had unleaded for the truck. The other can held that oily mix which was necessary to run a two-cycle. I always wondered which was more flammable. Still, there simply wasn't enough for the entire subdivision, not to mention the entire development. I would need to get a real wildfire going. A storm which could sustain itself and its own consumptive powers. The way I figured it was that everything had a portion of itself best suited for burning. Some integral bit that would render the rest, even unburnt, inoperative. For a country, its capital. For a house, its roof. For a table, any leg. For me, my heart, my brain. For this development, house four. I drove my truck to the cul-de-sac and backed up until house four loomed through my rear view. I might as well have been sitting in the truck bed. But I was not so scared this time, because I had the sun waiting in my pocket. Or at least next to me, in the passenger seat. In and out of the house did I slither. I left behind my trail of oils. When the gas cans ran out, I drizzled paint thinner in long, slow loops. I found the paint thinner in House One's attic. The smell bit so sharp I could have followed the trails with my eyes put out. If I became stirred when I was inside the house, well, how could I expect any other reaction? To be in the bedroom alone, the last person to ever exist in this place... It would have been impossible not to touch myself. I could feel the entire breadth of House 4's anti-life. The whole time it did not exist. When it had not housed anyone. Not a family. Not even a starving dog. All that solitude pressing against itself. Squeezing essence out in dribbles of sweet expectation. Sweat sliding between the flexed muscles of its imminence. And lurking below all that was a spoil. A wretchedness of which hoop was only one part. A core togetherness. A black nadir which existed as a perfect counterpoint to the apex of what came next. This vulgar sheen was not enough to stop my expulsion. If I'm being honest... It added my orgasm's keenness, its volume. Painted the walls and carpet with a power of mine which would from the inside come out. After my climax, excitement unabated, 
I poured a stream of paint thinner from the side door of the garage to the foot of the driveway where I sat a five-gallon bucket. I shucked my shirt and pants and stuffed them into the six fingers of paint thinner. I found a match rolling around my fingers. It danced against my fingernail, made as if to nuzzle. I groped its throbbing tip. My fingers plucked the matchbox from my pocket and set matches within the crooks of my knuckles. One, two, three. The first match was too wet. Dumb fingers fumbled the second match unlit into the bucket. But the third. Oh, the third. It flicked a swift life as surely as a torch struck by lightning. I dropped the match into the bucket. The paint thinner blazed away and shot a napalmic bundle of cotton, khaki, and paint thinner directly into House 4's siding. Concurrently, a streak of flame ran toward the house along my drizzled route. Faster than a wildfire. Insistent. Penetrant. I was already sprinting for the truck when House 4's windows blew out. First floor, then second. Glass tinkling in visual orchestra. I sat on the roof of the cab and watched the adolescent firestorm grow to maturity under the strangely silent roar of utter consumption. House 4's siding was burning. Vinyl drips the lake tights and sizzled into burbling pools which dried tortoise shell on the grass. House 3 caught a sprinkle and went up like a cattail. I hardly noticed. House 4 enchanted me. What existed beneath the siding was beyond my keen. I couldn't make any sense of it. Certainly not concrete. Nor wood, nor metal. The entire house was lurching rhythmically, as if gasping phlegmatic breath. And with this movement, my perspective shifted. I recognized what I was seeing, even if it was impossible. The glistening flank of some gigantic organ. With each throb, the organ shucked another exfoliation of vinyl or shingle. The house sprinkled to the sidewalk. A sheet of window sliced the garden hose in half and the hose undulated like a decapitated viper. The venom water surged onto the lawn. I could hardly hear the spurt for the throbbing of the great organ now played in concert with my headache and my heartbeat. I had to be wrong. I couldn't bear to see anymore. House 1 through 3 burned as hardly as House 4. The road leading from the cul-de-sac was guarded on either side by towering infernos. A duck ran by with its tufted crown aflame. He plunged into the pond and resurfaced, looking none the worse for wear. Yet, as I bore breathless witness, the world around me a wreath of apocalypse... My chest here singed, my boxers tented. The fire climaxed too early. The burn was already receding. House three's walls and roof were disintegrated. Flames guttered not in split wood or broken bricks, but rather in the humor of a translucent orb. I was trying to decipher this organ's identity when a plate shifted inside the aqueous and suddenly I gazed at a black manhole surrounded by striated spaghetti and gold. 
Under this gaze, I could not move. I was utterly caught. When the great eye rolled on, I ducked beneath the lip of the truck bed. House two's roof and chimney were contracting and expanding in ludicrous proportion. An ululation uttered from these elastic cords, high and mighty, louder than a hundred children's choirs burning alive within the steel hides of school buses. A whip flame wrinkled the cords until the sound lengthened, deepened. The other houses were likewise weathering the blaze. The true faces of House 5 and 6 were yet hidden. House 1 expressed a body part of which I could not identify and would never again study, no matter my curiosity. My firestorm had failed. In 15 more minutes, even these weak blazes would be gone. I screamed at the flames and at these unhomely houses, and when my voice echoed back, I couldn't believe how hoarse I sounded, until I realized that it wasn't my echo at all, but rather the collected quacks of a score of ducks. Honk, 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 until I screamed again. And when that wasn't enough, I climbed through the back window of the truck cab and slammed the horn. And there it was. Hoop had not just left a book open for me. He'd pilfered my keys along with the text, left the truck key protruding. The truck. I checked the horizon. Two fingers to dusk. Thirty minutes or thereabouts. My wrist wasn't naked without its watch. It was freed. I had all the time I needed. For my last few minutes, I read about the Pestigo. To think that such an inferno could happen in my own state. It was as if the universe was winking at me and going, yeah, maybe you too. Was this how aspiring actors felt when they noticed their downtown in a movie? How Jay Robbie felt when he was about to flip the big switch at Trinity and turn sand into glass? I had three quarters tank in my truck. I backed it up as far as I could without compromising a straight shot at house four. The old girl wasn't known for her acceleration, but I figured I had enough of a lead to be doing 40 or 50. When I couldn't fit any more fingers between the sun and the horizon, I shifted the truck into drive. My foot felt naked on the pedal. My skin dipped into the grooves, and I knew that if I were to look at my soul... I would find parallel, pale, alternating red lines where the blood had been squeezed, where the skin had been connected more to the rubber and the metal and the polymer than to the very blood moving inside of me. But I could not look at my foot, because I was looking at the rapidly advancing, slowly pulsing mass of House 4. At the foundation, at the rough-hewn altar, or whatever it was, I did not release the wheel. I guided her in. I believe there was an explosion. I believe that in the breath after my fiery lance, in the silent moment in which I laid Ragdoll in the driver's seat, 
that destruction inhaled a cul-de-sac in concentric circles and plasmatic ripples onwards, outwards, until this neighborhood was nothing but bones. I believe this because a moment later I floated above it all, up through the truck's roof and House 4's broken skull, up into the air. From this vantage I saw the fire. I was not so transcendent that I could not feel the pleasure of it. I could still appreciate how my blow to the heart had resulted in a body's failure, written in arcs of conflagration. My own body drifted oddly, not with the wind, which was fast, but with the toss and lick of the flame below. Another body danced alongside mine. A body just like mine was, now, writ of flame's ejaculation and the shadow of reflected sunlight. Hoop, of course. Close, but far away. Passing me on his way out. He drifted into the setting sun until he was nothing but mist, and then nothing at all. A flame retired. I did not follow. Could not. Instead, I revolved in a gyre around the subdivision. I spiraled in perfect regularity against the dome of wide sky. I gazed in witness of my new self, my new forms, and the alien body of the subdivision became as intimate as my own. Became my own self, in fact. Now ravaged by nature's sharp tooth consumption, the flame quenching in my pools, my liquids, my organs, my puddles of light and air. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For your bonus episode, Creepy Presents Vestigial.
Written by Jennifer Fleck and narrated by Heather Thomas. Such messes my spouse left behind. Our finances in tricky tangles. Closets, drawers, cupboards sloppily stripped. All the good LPs, gone. Evan took what he wanted, as always. Then he swayed all our old friendships and loyalties to his side. For I was old Jane, batshit crazy, a would-be witch who cuts herself for sympathy and attention. And he was the charismatic, tenured professor. Beloved, revered, perennially innocent. Believed. But Evan wasn't blameless. I'd often suspected, though I'd never known for certain. Two months ago, I found the newest evidence in our master bathroom. Signs of his latest dalliance. The mirror bore handprints, the smudge of a cheek, and a partial lipstick print, like half a kiss. It told the tale of a figure who'd been rammed against the marble sink from behind, her hands braced and face against the glass. Someone who wasn't me had left these signatures, perplexing as the Shroud of Turin. Then as I became aware of what I was seeing, damning as a perfume on a collar. I assumed her position, mirrored, doubled. I created a crime scene reenactment, imagining his face by my shoulder, twisted in passion. A forensic middle finger. My stomach dropped. Here was all the proof I needed. It marked the end of my marriage. There are indignities you can survive, and others you refuse to endure. Bereft, shackled by student loans and shockingly poor. That's how my partner of thirteen years left me. He moved in with her, their carryings on now common knowledge. Not a student of his, but another professor. The one whose poetry readings I'd been dragged to all winter and spring semester. Breathy and stilted word salads about love and affairs of the heart. Long pauses while she sought my gaze in the audience with a smug glimmer brewing in her eyes. Thinking back on it, putting two and two together, I filled with rage. Eventually my feelings cooled, clarified, became bitterness with an ice-sharp edge. My attention shifted from her to him. The way he'd taken her arm over the free wine and cheese, leaned forward, whispering something that made her smile. The blatancy of their affair, the publicness of it. As I stood nearby, tracing a scar that curled like a question mark on the back of my hand, feet aching, hoping we'd leave soon. I was now impoverished, alone in a house in an underwater market, my home slated to be sold soon at a loss. But I was not without my own ways and means. There's a ritual, rare in these days. I informed work of an upcoming operation, a week needed to recover. I hinted at painful and intimate, which was no lie. It's a female thing, I told my supervisor, 
my eyes downcast. The squeamish curl of his lip ensured privacy and space. No further questions asked. I began the preparations by papering over the windows and checking the locks on the doors. Laid in a larder of rich foods, fatty cuts of beef, sticks of butter, avocados soft and smoky with rot. When night fell and the ripening moon rose, I painted the sigils on my skin in moss green and pebble gray, family colors from the old world, and began the fasting, the quiet chants that rose and fell. As the pains came, I held my back and paced the hallways. I covered all 4,382 ridiculous feet of travertine and Persian wool. Pangs at first tedious and grinding, then nearly unbearable. I grunted and lowed like an animal, went on my hands and knees, panting and slobbering. A night and a day, and a night and a day passed. We'd never had children. Evan promised we'd try later, ever later, knowing I'd reached the age where such a pursuit becomes increasingly difficult. Once we were settled, he'd say, and I'd look around me and point out this expanse and plentitude, all we'd bought to consume and to enjoy, or to grow tired of and to throw away. He was placating me, no sincerity behind his sweet reassurances. He took a lock of my graying hair behind my ear, chucked me under the chin, and dismissed me by opening his phone. Now as the moon rose at last in all its fullness, and my pain reached a zenith and edged past it, I arranged all the small mirrors so I could see deeply into myself. I took up my scalpel and scissors. I was no stranger to the particular pain of sharp blades, of cutting. The first long cut unzipped me from breast crease to pelvic arch and eased my labor pains. I peered inside. Everything seemed arrayed in the usual matter, yet I paused to marvel at the parts of me that trembled in their veils and viscera. I slowed my pulse. I only needed but a small piece of each organ. But it must be taken quickly, before my body caught on to what dark trickery I'd gotten into. I snipped, pinched, severed, pried, cut. When I finished collecting what was needed, I closed muscle and skin, my stitches rough, harried, but strong. I'd scar impressively, crisscrossing all the old silvery tracks and trails. The oldest ones Evan had once traced tenderly, saying he'd never hurt me. The next to oldest, he'd inspected with a barely concealed disgust. The newest scars. These he'd ignored entirely. He'd thought all of it a message to him, each and every mark. But instead, they'd been tiny doorways I'd cut to find a way out of temporary states of anguish. But now wasn't time to dwell in the past. I was a mother, my body given over to lives, not my own. The taken pieces lay bloody in an enamelware bowl. Five in all, I bore. One from my spleen, 
child of earth and the songs at summer's end. One from my lung, she of cold metal and colder tears, autumn's darling. One from my kidney, birthling of black water and brine, winter and fear. One from my liver, the green woods babe, bright with anger and fresh in salt. And the last from my heart, red as fire, seed of joy and bitterness both. The runt, still as a stone. With blood-sticky hands I wrapped my heart's child in black coffin satin and fell back in exhaustion. The others squirmed to me like newborn kangaroo kits, latching wherever they could to my flesh, sinking their new teeth, nursing with vigor. Rich foods near spoiling nourished me during my confinement. I devoured skin and rind, pit and bone. And my body, in turn, fed my brood. My heart's child finally stirred in her satin trappings, revived. Sluggish at first. Then her needle teeth pierced me, and I felt how starved she'd been. Plenty of fight in you yet, I murmured, stroking what I thought might be her cheek. Only a mother could love children like these, and I brimmed with admiration and adoration. Like kittens stripped of skin, only the barest impression of limbs and paws. They quickly grew larger. In terms of fruit, cherries became clementines, became apples, then cantaloupes, then pie pumpkins. When they threatened to overgrow, I knew the calling time had come. Only the strongest could live. For the ritual is firm on this point, as cruel as it is exacting. Had those sightless eyes of theirs, too many like spiders, fixed upon me, I'd have lost my nerve. So I waited until they fell into their collective drowses. Into a plastic garbage sack went liver and lung, spleen and kidney. I heard angry panic seething from the Mercedes trunk as I drove, barreling through the dark to a forgotten beach I knew. By the time I'd hurled them into the river, four had become two, having devoured each other. I returned home to Little Heart. It took hours to calm her. It took many promises, whispered into the ears now growing under her new hair, its silken strands the color my own were in youth. By Saturday morning, Heart was fully developed. She stood before me, my golem daughter, dressed in the best clothes from my wardrobe. Diamonds on wires I pushed through her lobes as she winced, hissing. Then the whisper of stockings, the pinch and teeter of stilettos with blood-red soles. My will ran through her, traveling spreading nerves, the branches of a tree made of lightning. At the threshold of the world she stood, hands clasped, awaiting instruction. Like me, but better. Like the best me possible. Heart's been out in the world a while now, doing my bidding. I've managed to hold back the realtor who's all too eager, ready to drive a stake into my yard. 
for if all goes well, this child of mine will come back to me reformed. She'll have pried out Evan's heart and substituted herself, her body shrunken again, all beating muscle and machine-like purpose. She'll return to me clothed in his form, to all future curious and prying eyes, a vision of my husband returned, contrite, dutiful, doting. Then she'll hand me his heart, gone cold and still. This offering we'll dedicate to family, to those in the old world, going back and back in history. Our family line a network of scars, of backs broken on wheels, of bodies bound as flames rose and consumed them. We'll sing, we'll chant, we'll rejoice. Then the final task the ritual demands. We'll burn his vestigial organ, the blind pocket of questionable origin or function, to cinders. The ashes will go in the morning's trash. All who whispered, judged, and disparaged me. They'll assume he came back to me, Evan did. They'll think of this surprise outcome as a reconciliation, a love story. And maybe that's what it is. For more information on this podcast, including how to submit your own story for consideration, please visit creepypod.com. You can also follow us at CreepyPod on social media and YouTube. All stories told on this podcast are done so through Creative Commons Sharealike licensing or with written consent from the authors. No portion of this podcast may be rebroadcast or otherwise distributed without the express written consent of the Creepy Podcast production team and the story's author. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Item number SCP-5186. SCP-7160. SCP-7533. Object class. Euclid. Keter. Safe. Special containment procedures. <laughs> Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. <laughs> the only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing. Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.